Previously on Flying the Line. The election of ALPA President Charles Ruby, a seemingly status quo leader, brings reform and new ideas to the association, challenging what some members believe the purpose of their union should be. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 21, The Origins of the American Airlines Split. Quite often, witnesses to a traumatic event emerge with totally different accounts of what happened remembering words nobody spoke, and events that never occurred. Strong emotions trigger distortion, and the ambiguity that often characterizes eyewitness accounts are usually influenced by fear and anger. Whom does one believe, for example, when two old enemies, with the fires of indignation still burning in their eyes, recount differing versions of history? Eyewitness accounts of the departure of the American Airlines pilots from ALPA in 1963 embodied these qualities because there were no dispassionate observers on either side. According to the ALPA loyalists at American, the dissidents who took control of their pilot group in the late 1950s were simply wreckers, no better than those who sacked ancient Rome and amused themselves by destroying priceless works of art. On the other hand, the pilot leaders in the 1980s at the cloned version of ALPA called the Allied Pilots Association, or APA, tell a totally different tale. They insist that the proper history of their separation from ALPA should begin by recounting Clancy Sayan's methods and the actions of other pilot groups out to sabotage the American Airlines pilots. The separatists often cite the strike benefits that were denied to them after the December 1958 walkout. ALPA loyalists insist that the separatists knew in advance that they wouldn't be eligible for strike benefits. So where does the truth lie? How can we purify the facts to reveal what went wrong in 1963. Make no mistake about it, the separation of the American Airlines pilot group from ALPA was a crisis on a grand scale. All the prerequisites for ALPA's total disillusion were present in 1963. Historians can often tell what happened, but not why. The trouble that led to the separation from ALPA in 1963 began with a bitter personality conflict between Clancy Sayan and Gene Seal, the American Airlines Master Executive Council Chairman elected in 1956. Why the two men held a disdain for each other is lost to history and perhaps unrecoverable since both men have passed away. It is widely thought that the initial trouble between Sayan and Seal arose because of some personality quirk, some chemistry that makes one person instinctively dislike another. For whatever reason, 
Within a year of SEAL's accession to the American Airlines chairmanship, his relationship with Saiyan can only be described as poisonous. Decades later, the fruit of their split lives on in a dangerous and quite unnecessary division in the ranks of professional airline pilots. Alba's history, up to 1963, had been a remarkable story of unification across company lines. The cooperative spirit of the first generation of professional airline pilots was their greatest single resource, and without it, Dave Bankey's plan to unionize pilots would have died. But after World War II, and certainly by the 1950s, the old spirit of shoulder-to-shoulder solidarity among pilots was beginning to erode. Of course, Alba had seen its share of fractious skirmishing, even in the best of times. But the old pilots knew how to put their intramural quarrels aside. By their nature, the first generation of professional airline pilots were independent free thinkers who always applied the arts of conciliation and compromise imperfectly. When the chips were down, however, they knew that an imperfect compromise to preserve unity beat none at all. Bitter experience had taught them that without the strength they derived from each other, they would stand alone before the impersonal power of giant corporations whose personnel policies could be quite predatory. Aside from the TWA pilot's foray into company unionism in 1933, there had never been a serious threat of disunity before it erupted at American in 1963. But by then, everything was changing. Inevitably, a new generation arrived that was made up of pilots less steeped in past struggles and more complacent about the professional status ALPA had created for them. The new generation was also increasingly indifferent to ALPA and its administration. Pioneer pilots, by and large, paid close attention to ALPA affairs, and they could not understand the lackadaisical attitude of younger pilots particularly when it came to governance at the local level. By the late 1950s, many pilots simply took for granted that somebody else would do the hard work needed to sustain ALPA. While complacent pilots golfed and pursued second careers, a minority ran ALPA's local affairs at each airline. Although most of these individuals were dedicated to making ALPA work, at some airlines, a few pilots used ALPA as a gimmick for personal glory. The indifference of the rank and file and the poor attendance at local council meetings meant that a minority at any airline could, with proper planning, seize control and eventually dominate the master executive council itself. The danger was that a well-organized clique could speak for an indifferent majority of pilots. Pilots at American had felt a pervasive sense of injury for a long time. As the backbone of ALPA in the early days, the first to organize 100%, the first to negotiate a contract, 
and the only pilot group to stand absolutely rock firm during the threatened nationwide strike of 1933, they felt superior to other pilot groups. Their devotion to ALPA was so strong in the early days that from the election of Clyde Holbrook as ALPA's first vice president, through Tom Harding's selection as member of the first Air Safety Board, they dominated ALPA affairs in all areas except the presidency itself. Their dominance in turn produced something of a backlash that manifested itself by the late 1940s in an almost automatic anti-American airlines voting bloc at most conventions. American pilot Willis Proctor failed in his challenge to Banky in 1947, although in truth many of Proctor's fellow pilots were lukewarm about his candidacy. During the Sayan era, two more pilots mounted formidable but unsuccessful challenges for the presidency. Both of these American pilots were men of wide reputation and long service to ALPA, and their rejection left many members of their pilot group feeling aggrieved. Shortly after 1956, many old-time ALPA loyalists at American began either to retire or to graduate to management ranks. In the 1956 convention, was a landmark in the trouble between American and the rest of ALPA. ALPA loyalists began losing the reins of power at American as a series of MEC chairmen became progressively more inclined towards the dissidents' point of view. Eventually, the dissidents took control. The passing of the older generation of leaders made things easier for the generation of dissidents at American so that after 1957, they made opposition to Sayan the key to their internal politics, largely because their anti-Sayanism struck fertile ground among rank-and-file pilots. No leader at the American Airlines pilot group ever seemed to lose support through an open display of hostility towards Sayan whose habit of socializing with prominent United Airlines pilots led American Airlines pilots to believe that he was plotting against their interest somehow. The management of American Airlines, however, whose grudges against ALPA dated back to the Banky era, clearly encouraged their pilots to believe that Sayan was singling out their pilots for harsher treatment than other airlines, particularly than that of United Airlines. The two carriers were competing fiercely during the 1950s for dominance, both technologically and economically. This competition cost both airlines money unnecessarily, particularly in inaugurating jet service. Although Pan American World Airways was the first to fly large numbers of jets, American Airlines was the first to use them in domestic service. To beat United into service with jets, American Airlines had to avoid a strike by bowing to ALPA's crew complement policy. But yielding to ALPA exposed American to a strike threat from the Flight Engineers International Association. So for many months, 
American had to operate the new jets with four crew members, three pilots, and an engineer. There is very persuasive evidence that management so resented ALPA's crew complement policy that they began actively encouraging the separatist movement among their pilots as early as 1955. That is not to say, however, that the coming schism in ALPA was a management plot. Rather, one can conclude from certain company actions that management aided and abetted the separatist movement by making things easy for pilots who were hostile to ALPA, thus assisting their rise within the American Airlines pilot group. The suspicion of American Airlines management rests on abundant historical precedent. As a protege of E.L. Cord, American Airlines President C.R. Smith took a crude view of labor relations. Although Cord gained effective control of American Airlines in 1932, he had made so many enemies in Washington after the Century Airlines strike of that year that heading the airline himself might jeopardize its mail contract. So Cord delegated C.R. Smith to front for him. The old-timers at American Airlines, some of whom had worked for Cord before, knew they were in for trouble. No matter who was nominally in charge, a Cord operation was a Cord operation, whether it was Century Airlines, Auburn Auto, or Checker Cab. And that meant labor baiting and low wages. True to form, Smith announced a pay cut coupled with more restrictive work rules almost immediately after taking over. The Great Depression made a handy excuse, but in good times or bad, Cord's enterprises adhered to the iron law of wages, meaning the proper wage for any worker is an amount so low that only the most desperate unemployed person will work for it. Therefore, since plenty of unemployed pilots asked American Airlines for work in 1932, Smith figured he was paying pilots too much. In fairness to Smith, we must acknowledge that he was not alone in wanting to reform the pilot pay system in 1932. The operating companies, faced with declining revenues as the Great Depression deepened, sought to end the system inherited from the post office in 1926 that paid pilots base pay plus mileage. Some airlines, like Northwest Airlines and Pan Am, already paid pilots monthly salaries. Although this reform did not cut salaries drastically at the time, every pilot knew it would work out to a substantial reduction as newer, faster aircraft came online. Dave Banky staked the association's whole future on the fight against flat monthly salaries. If he could not deliver on this vital issue, the typical pilot of that era would see no reason to join ALPA. In a supreme test of nerve and will, Banky threatened a nationwide strike early in 1933, knowing ALPA could not win. By persuading the National Labor Board, 
the predecessor of the National Labor Relations Board, to intervene in the case, Banky averted the strike. The board's function was essentially to keep labor peace, and only by convincing its investigative staff that there really would be a nationwide strike was Banky able to present the ALPA case. If the board's investigators had concluded that Banky's strike threat was merely a bluff, they would have stood aside. The strike would have gone forward, and ALPA would have been broken. Students of aviation history today would know about a pilot unionization only as an odd episode that ended in an abortive strike in 1933, as labor history is littered with similar examples of unions that destroyed themselves with premature strikes. But largely thanks to the pilots of American Airlines, that didn't happen. Even at United Airlines, Banky's own pilot group, a dozen pilots stood ready to cross the picket line. And at other airlines, there were even more. Fortunately for ALPA, the board investigators interpreted the steady resolve of the American pilots to shut down Smith's airline as typical of the whole industry. So, was C.R. Smith, many years later, creating the conditions upon which ALPA would flounder? After the 1956 convention, at which Clancy Sayan defeated Willie Drummond of American Airlines for the presidency, several ALPA loyalists openly complained about the airline management's involvement in the campaign on Drummond's behalf. Apparently fearful that these manipulations would lead to more difficult labor relations once Sayan was re-elected, American Airlines management tried to appease Sayan. Despite assurances from the air carrier's vice president of personnel, many ALPA loyalists were skeptical of their sincerity. Clancy Sayan could not help but resent the increasingly hostile attitude of the American Airlines group after 1956. There is good evidence that Sayan tried to undermine the pilot group's leaders with their rank and file. As one might expect, Sayan's meddling in the pilot group's internal affairs played into the hands of the dissidents, who quickly exploited the notion that ALPA's national officers were persecuting them. Rank-and-file members naturally felt closer to their own elected leader, even though he was elected at poorly attended council meetings, than to ALPA's national officers. Moreover, the local leadership's nearly absolute monopoly on the sources of information gave the typical American Airlines pilot a distorted view of Sayan's protracted quarrel with Gene Seal and his successors. By 1961, it was obvious that some concession would have to be made to the American Airlines pilot group to preserve ALPA's unity. Since the dissidents had made Sayan the principal focus of their complaints, it seemed logical that a change of leadership might appease them. As we have seen, Sayan was also tired of ALPA and actively seeking another career. Although Sayan's friends, still in the majority in ALPA, 
would never have let the dissidents drive him from office. His decision to resign in the middle of his term seemed to be in the best tradition of internal compromise to preserve unity. Although fair-minded pilots were appalled at the virulence of the American Airlines leader's assault on Sayan, they accepted his resignation as an unpleasant fact of life. Some pilots pleaded with Sayan to reconsider his decision to resign, perhaps to take a sabbatical and then resume the presidency. The president of the Canadian Airline Pilots Association wrote to Sayan, offering to step down if Sayan would agree to accept the presidency of his association, and he was offered a hefty sum in terms. But Sayan resisted this tempting offer to operate a trucking business, dabble in politics, and become an Eastern vice president before his tragic death in 1965. Sayan's midterm departure from the ALPA presidency in 1962 meant that ALPA was, in effect, meeting the dissidents at American Airlines and their supporters halfway. The next step was up to the pilot group's leadership. Next time on Flying the Line, the pilots of American Airlines decide to chart their own future after the issue of crew complement returns to the forefront and dissident leaders seize their chance to break away. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 21 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2020. All rights reserved.